Good morning, it's Amy. Hello, Colter. Hello. Good morning, it's James. Hey, good morning, everyone. That is still the sound of work right now at the Center for Court Innovation. And welcome to another socially distanced episode of New Thinking. I'm Matt Watkins, recording from my home in Brooklyn, New York City. As of May 2nd, the COVID-19 infection rate in New York City's Rikers Island jails was almost five times the rate of the city as a whole, and close to 30 times the rate for the entire U.S. That's according to data compiled by the Legal Aid Society that I'll link to on the episode page. One way the city has been getting people off Rikers Island is by turning to nonprofits. Three nonprofits, the Center for Court Innovation, the Criminal Justice Agency, and Cases, have been running a program called Supervised Release citywide for four years now. It's designed to keep people out of jail awaiting trial. Instead of bail, that many people can't afford, they get supervision from social workers to help them make their court appearances. And they get referrals to voluntary services, covering everything from mental health to housing. That program has made a real dent in the city's pretrial jail population, and it was expanded significantly as part of New York State's recent bail reforms. Now it's been pressed into service on short notice to combat a public health emergency. And all of this while there's been pushback in certain quarters against the idea of letting anyone out early from Rikers right now. To talk about how the early release program was put together on the fly in the midst of a pandemic, I spoke with three of the folks leading that effort. Aubrey Fox is the executive director of the New York City Criminal Justice Agency. Giles Malieko is the senior director of pretrial services at Cases. And my colleague Adam Mansky is the director of criminal justice at the Center for Court Innovation. I started by asking Aubrey to talk about just how quickly they had to get everything up and running. We, uh, the providers, all had a conversation. I think it was March 21st, Saturday. We wanted to discuss, you know, what what could we do potentially to support all of the important work the city was doing, including what we were hearing about the potential of people being released from Rikers. And at that point, we just were having kind of preliminary conversations. And then later that night, we got an urgent summons from uh, our partners, the mayor's office of criminal justice, who said, you know, we're about to release hundreds of people from Rikers who are all city sentenced, meaning they have some time left in their jail sentence. We want to release them, supervised release. Can you do that? So we spent, you know, the next 24 to 48 hours hastily putting together protocols, thinking through how we would basically design an entirely new approach. We've never worked with sentenced individuals before. We hadn't worked at Rikers Island, um, and this is a completely new population. So we had to really build this on the fly. Similar story for you, uh, Giles, as well at Cases? Yeah, I think it was, you know, really amazing kind of high pressure experience. We were really understanding the gravity of sort of what we were being asked to kind of embark on. You know, it really, for me, I think highlighted the collaboration and a lot of the way that the three organizations that do supervised release have been able to work so well together. And that really was a process, I think, that started in earnest around the expansion and bail reform. And then this was kind of an opportunity where we could really put it to work and get that large amount of you know, work done in a short period of time. And then, Adam, maybe, I mean, 
Aubrey mentioned that supervised release obviously never worked with people directly off Rikers Island. What were some of the challenges of trying to not only do this work at Rikers, but do this work at Rikers in the midst of a pandemic where Rikers was quickly becoming an epicenter of it within New York City? Well, much of our work has been about making connections with the individual uh, defendants or clients. So it literally means being in the courtroom and meeting with the person as their case is being resolved or as they're being sent to us for supervised release for us to start the process of speaking with them and connecting with them. And here we were with a situation where everything had pretty much moved to remote where we were, you know, being told people were going to be released from Rikers Island, uh, and there was no sense of no sense of predictability for how that would happen. And we developed really pretty great protocols for how we could be connected to the each person who was getting released, each sentenced person. And the truth is that unfortunately, in the kind of moment as people were being released, uh, I would say that it was much trickier in practice. What we ended up happening is that there was a, people were wait, you know, our staff were ready on call for all of our staff, ready on call for the weekend, staying up overnight, ready to receive calls from the newly released people. And actually, it did happen overnight. Many people were released uh, as late as three or four in the morning. And some people were released, you know, without really kind of the close connection, you know, contact information being passed to us. And uh, so that really then led to a lot of work on our part to try and figure out how to how to reach the people who have been released to us. Yeah, this is Aubrey. And I just want to underscore the Kind of challenge, the institutional challenge that we face that you know, Giles and Adam have really well sketched out. I mean, we're as supervised release providers, we're used to working in pretty stable environments. And so in this instance, you know, we didn't have any of that control over our environment. We, we couldn't interact directly with the client in this case. It was a completely new place where they were being released from. Uh, and they, they were being released at all hours of the day uh, and night. And so it really was a scramble for us to see what parts of the supervised release model we can maintain. Um, and I, I'm pretty proud and impressed that, you know, in this scramble, we were able to make a model that seems to work because it is based on this connection between the client and their case manager. And, you know, there's no connection without the ability to reach the person in question. And, you know, I give credit to our staff collectively who, you know, have been working in some cases seven days a week because there's a requirement for a daily check-in as part of this program, but also to the the city, the mayor's office of criminal justice and the department of corrections for like working in partnership with us to make the handoff as smooth as possible. And Giles, maybe what are you guys finding out are, are people's greatest needs right now being released? I mean, People getting released at the best of times from Rikers Island often have some pretty serious needs. I, I can imagine those are just uh, sort of exaggerated uh, right now under COVID-19. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think you couldn't state that any more um, clearly. I think what our uh, primary focus was really to get a really good understanding of, of really what people's needs were 
And I think that helped us develop uh, really a better understanding of really what motivates them to stay connected with us and uh, what helps them, you know, maintain compliance. You know, and, and what we really were learning was that uh, a lot of these people had a range of needs from the most basic needs of a place to go. Um, we had situations where people were coming out of Rikers and, you know, not being permitted back to where they were living before, becoming homeless sort of unexpectedly. So it was from the very most basic needs of just necessities to really, I think uh, a lot of people were really struggling with finding employment and just the limited sort of employment opportunities that were out there. And then seeing what other alternate plans they may need to get put into place before they maybe work ready. So maybe connecting to treatment, you know, or any uh, anything just as a supportive service. I mean, we saw some people with very basic needs, including food insecurity and also even clothing, you know, released only with the clothes that they had and, and not sure, not having access to change of clothes. There are, you know, this is, a, as, as Aubrey said, this is a pretrial supervision program, an alternative to pretrial detention, essentially. And those programs exist in many places. But our focus is very much clinical. And although we bring rigorous compliance standards to, you know, making sure that people are checking in as they're supposed to and that they're making their court appearances, we really see this as an opportunity to help stabilize some very much at-risk people. And we do that through using social workers and case managers as the people providing the supervision. So we're always looking at the clients we're serving through a lens of what, what needs do they have and how can we better serve them. Yeah, I mean, one of the needs, as I understand it, that social workers identified was for some people, they simply needed a, a phone right, in order to be able to participate in this kind of remote supervision, right? There were a number of people being released who had no access to phones. And certainly in the time of COVID, um, I think we're all finding that we're able to manage things differently with technology than we might have in a different time. We'd done some research uh, uh, looking at the people that were providing supervised release programming to and found that something like 30% of our clients didn't have uh, access to phones. And and again, I just want to credit the collaboration with, uh, with the Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice, as well as uh, with CJA and Cases, who pitched in, uh, you know, you guys had, had already lined up phones. And uh, you guys pretty much all shared them with uh, all of the clients who needed them. Uh, and, and we really appreciated that contribution. And that's been uh, incredibly important to the success of the program. And uh, I, I also want to take a moment to credit our partner at the Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice, Miriam Popper, who uh, on a moment's notice drove in from some remote location, hustled into the when people started getting released or when, when they had noticed that people were going to get released and spent, you know, I don't know what, 14 hours or something on Rikers Island to help facilitate the process. And, you know, I, I think that was pretty impressive. Uh, she, she went the extra mile. And I, and I just, this is Aubrey again, just backing up for a minute. One of, one of the nice things about this project is you can see there's sort of a thread that connects all these, you know, very micro 
moments where we're trying to make the logistics work. But if you if you look at the macro level, in just a matter of weeks, you've had basically 25% of the Rikers Island population, jail population, empty. We're down now to a jail population that hasn't been seen since 1949. And, you know, that's incredible. You, you have a jail population reduction of about 1,500 people. You know, one of the things we've been looking at is kind of historical analogies. And the closest one we can come up with is in the early 80s, there was a federal judge who basically ordered that 600 people be released from Rikers to ease overcrowding. And at the time, there were 10,000 people at Rikers. So that's about 6% of the population. And this this decision that the city was forced into and reluctantly complied with basically tied the city into knots for months and even years. It was hugely controversial, very um, big issue in the tabloid press. People were concerned about public safety impacts. And yet, you know, you had more people to choose from since there were you know, about twice as many people in Rikers at that point, and you were only releasing 6% of the population. And the decision the city made at the time, because they were so reluctant to cooperate, was essentially not to do nothing. To, they didn't gather contact information. They didn't provide supervision or support for those individuals. And, you know, when my agency back in the 80s did an evaluation of the program, it didn't do very well, you know, in terms of rearrest rates and court appearance rates with subsequent court dates the outcomes were kind of dismal. And I, I'm happy to say that the city kind of learned its lesson from that program and has really tried to surround as, as much as possible. I mean, yeah, I mean, we're, we're in the midst of a pandemic and there are certain things that you just can't provide, but I think the city deserves credit for learning the lesson of the compulsory release program in the 80s that, that didn't operate so effectively. And it has tried to surround the people being released today with as much support and supportive services as possible. And it's early days, but I think the results that we're seeing are very promising. Right. So in in the 1980s, you didn't have teams of dedicated social workers working with people being released off Rikers. Now we do, but there has been some pushback uh, in the press and from other places about this idea of releasing people. Um, what can we say so far about the results? Yeah, this is Adam. Uh, and I think it's been interesting because the, the media, maybe at the prompting of some unhappy sources, immediately started talking about, writing about uh, how people were being released and they were committing crimes right, left and center. And Many people were getting rearrested and sent back to jail. And in fact, what we've seen is quite the opposite. Just to give a, a bit of a snapshot, you know, I think about 312 or more people were released to us. Uh, and when I say us, I mean all three agencies. And after a month of programming, really only uh, 2% had been rearrested, which is about seven people. And of those, there were only three felonies, which is pretty great numbers. And in addition, it took us a little bit to get in touch with everyone. But in fact, we've been able to reach many of the people and uh, the compliance, the overall com program compliance is uh, 92%. And so people are staying in touch and they are doing what they're supposed to. And, you know, the program itself is pretty rigorous. You know, the city requires that the person is in touch with uh, us every single day. 
we we are we have done thousands collectively. We've done something I don't know how many thousand six thousand phone calls um, to uh, with people, and we again see that as an opportunity to connect to identify needs they're having and to connect them with services. Yeah, this is Giles. Um, kind of what we've seen is that you know this program really just requires persistence, and it really has paid off over time. I was reviewing some files and. You know, I'm noticing that staff are really being creative. And when we think about engagement and doing that work all over the phone, they've been doing different things like finding ways to get in touch with someone can sometimes depend on, you know, developing some trust with someone who's close to the participant and that person lending credibility and eventually making contact with the person. So it can take a lot of the social service version of elbow grease to really get in touch with that person. And then I think once we make that connection, it's, it's a lasting one and it, and it stays firm for the, the remainder of the time they're in the program. Yeah, and just this is Aubrey just adding to, to this some more. My assessment of the staff, the case managers working on the project, social workers who work for social for supervisor relief, is that you know, they feel a special sense of responsibility here. You know, they know how much scrutiny there is for these releases they know how urgent the request was for supervised release to help with this new population in this new way. And I think they feel like a genuine sense of having skin in the game that, you know, they need to make this work. And so it's not necessarily rocket science what we're doing, making sure you have a phone number, calling people, calling collateral contacts, you know, trying to reach someone through their aunt or their mother or, you know, someone else that they're connected to in their life offering help, offering assistance, getting phones to people. I mean, we can go on and on and on. But the point is that the incentives are really aligned here where the city can turn to supervised release and know that we will basically not let any stone unturned in trying to make this work. And again, I'll just add the collaboration because I, I recall just a couple of Friday evenings ago, we got a call from the city saying that we needed to issue letters to everyone who was non-compliant, which is a fairly small number, but to let them know that if they don't get in compliance, they could get picked up and returned to uh, Rikers. And it was a late Friday evening, and we had to uh, make an extra effort to reach out to anyone we could, the people who had not been compliant to reach out to their family members and so forth. And and I, I really do want to thank you, Aubrey and, and Joanne from your team who offered to help my agency, the Center for Court Innovation, just put in an extra round of calls to the people that are our, our clients just to, to try one extra bit to help that contact and it was able to get an extra person back into compliance. And, you know, again, that's kind of a, a very positive spirit. And collectively, are are you all able to accept more people into this program or, or do you know what to expect at this point? The reason that we're taking people who have a, an unexpired portion of their jail sentence is because the city has the legal authority through the Commissioner of Corrections to release them before their jail sentence is complete to the community. And that has certain requirements. And so that authority was used in this kind of emergency situation. But there are lots of other reasons why people are at Rikers. They may be held there on pretrial detention or they're 
held there on a parole violation. And in those instances, the authority to release them may rest with the state agency in the case of parole, or uh, if you're held in pretrial detention, it has to be a judge's decision. There aren't that many sentenced people left, but there has been discussion at various points about a smaller number of additional people being released to our program. And I think as, as this continues, we have made ourselves available for people who are held pretrial. You know, judges in individual instances can make the decision to release someone to supervise release. And what what would you each say, I guess, that, that you have learned the most from this and, and, and from this, uh, you know, really rapid response under what everyone is correctly calling un- unprecedented, uh, in unprecedented times? Um, maybe, Giles, we could go with you first. Yeah, I think um, being flexible, I think, really with the situation and really just having teams, I think, that are just so dedicated that they're willing to really just make some sacrifices. When you make a policy for seven days a week contact, you can make the policy, but you know we're the people who have to deliver that and uh, figure out how that works with our staffing and and also what what makes uh, the best situation for uh, the person in the program and and how that can affect them. So I think our staff have just been so enthused and you know really to echo what Aubrey was mentioning just about the sense of dedication that the staff really have for all their clients, but also particularly for this group, you know, I think just made this all possible and really just um, provided such a great opportunity for for people who, who may otherwise, you know, really be in potential uh, terrible health situations. And Adam, is there a big takeaway for you? You know, there's the bigger question, like we now see that confinement, jail, is literally toxic. And as a result, there's been a tremendous effort by the city and by the really New York City's robust network of nonprofit providers, social service providers, to help get as many people out of there as possible. And it could certainly happen faster. And there are probably more people who can and should be released. But I think what we've been able to demonstrate is that actually it can be done safely and help the people who are getting released. And I guess the question is, can anyone put the, should anyone put the genie back in the bottle? I mean, you know, we don't know what the world's going to look like after this, but will people default to jail uh, as frequently as they had in the past? It's certainly been changing in New York City. And I think the lessons, what we're learning here in New York City, are there lessons that are applicable elsewhere, uh, including this collaboration of providing closely monitored supervision, but that is anchored in social services and a clinical approach um, to help keep people in the community. Um, So I think that's a a big question. Yeah, and and this is Aubrey, and that's such an important point. And we haven't talked about, quote unquote, traditional supervised release so much, but one of the things that may get lost in the situation we're dealing with now is we had a major change to the state bail reform statute that took effect in January. So before all that expansion, you know, supervised release might be the option, pretrial release option, something like three to 4% of all judicial decisions where there was a continued case. The case wasn't resolved at arraignment. Now, in the first few months of 2020, that zoomed up to closer to 20%. That's an enormous increase. And 
I would assume that when we get back to, you know, normal-ish business, that supervised release is going to continue to have this predominant role. And so there's so many interesting stories that kind of are getting buried in everyone's understandable focus on uh, COVID-19. But, you know, supervised release has really kind of had an incredible trajectory from more more or less a pilot in 2009, citywide expansion in 2016, to uh, where it stood in the first few months of, of 2020, which just to cite one example, then I'll stop talking, is that for the very first time in the city's history, you were you were more likely to be given supervised release as a pretrial release outcome than monetary bail. That started happening in the early part of this year. That's really a landmark event if you're thinking, how do we reduce the use of pretrial detention as much as possible. And so I think we'll we'll go back to playing that role and assuming that role in the near future. That was my conversation with Aubrey Fox. It was the last voice you heard, the executive director of the Criminal Justice Agency. Giles Malieko, the senior director of pretrial services at Cases. And Adam Mansky, the director of criminal justice at the Center for Court Innovation. For more information about today's episode, go to courtinnovation.org slash newthinking. For their help with this episode, special thanks to Tia Pooler and Camille Wada. I produced and uh, edited what you heard today, and I got remote technical support from the punctual Bill Harkins. Samiha Mia is our director of design. Emma Dayton is our VP of outreach. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron at QuiverNYC.com. And our show's founder is Rob Wolf. This has been New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. Thanks for listening and stay safe.